Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. As I said, we're in ordinary time, which just means we're following the footsteps of Jesus in regular everyday discipleship. And the church gives us Luke 9, 18 through 24, the Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah this morning. And in this little pericope, we see basically the three kind of steps, the, the paradigm of discipleship. That's simplest form. We see that discipleship begins by apprehending who Jesus is. It continues by apprehending what he's done, what he's actually done. And then when you apprehend who he is and what he's done, this always issues forth in an invitation which is, follow me, follow me. So I want to begin by kind of front-loading the invitation to follow Jesus, because it's really intense. And so I'm going to just front-load it, and we're going to bring out a little bit of the intensity of the call as we explore it, and then we'll look at what he's done and who he is. So here again, the plain teaching of Jesus that Cindy just read for us. If anyone wants to become my followers, some of you would say yes, some of you would say maybe, I'm thinking about it. Well, what's on offer for me? Let him deny themselves themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what does it profit them if they gain the whole world but lose or forfeit themselves? So what does it mean to be a Christian? It means to believe certain things, yes, but true belief always has legs. It always means to follow Christ. The cross, you all know, was a, was a torturous form of capital punishment. Um, as Jesus' disciples heard these words, follow me to the cross, they thought of a Roman execution designed to deliver death and utter agony and humiliating nakedness and in shame. Not a pleasant thought. This is not the brochure that many of us want to offer the world when it comes to following Christ. Take up your cross and follow me. But then he spares the disciples a little bit of confusion as they're thinking, does he mean like, like actually? By saying daily, take up your cross daily and follow me. You can't take up your cross daily unless taking up your cross is at least at times a metaphor because the day you actually get on a Roman cross is the last day of your life. There's no daily tomorrow to keep following. So Jesus clarifies the invitation as largely spiritual metaphor, although not necessarily, and he expands on the invitation to take up the cross in this way. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will find it. And so there we have basically the foundation of the Christian spiritual life. The Roman way is to, sort of, is to gain power by crucifying our enemies. The Jesus way is to lose the world by dying for enemies. So the Roman way is to gain the world by crucifying enemies. The Jesus way is to lose the world by dying for enemies. And so following Jesus means our life's work is to imitate this cruciform pattern, this commitment to surrender the self in love, to others, even unto death. Disciples' life is cruciform. Such was the fierceness of abandonment. You got, some of you know the story of Jim Elliot, famous missionary to the deep jungles of Ecuador. An old prayer of his reveals that he had died long before the spear actually stopped his breath. He wrote this, a prayer. He said, Father, take my life, yea, my blood if thou wilt, and consume it with thine enveloping fire, I would not save it, for it is not mine to save. Have it, Lord, have it all. 
pour out my life as an oblation for the world, as an offering for the world. Blood is only of value as it flows before thine altar. Blood is only of value as it flows before thine altar. That, that's the invitation. To be a martyr, if not, not in the flesh, then in the spirits, sometimes maybe in the flesh, but to be a Christian is to give up one's entire self, to reorient one's life entirely around the self-giving, cruciform love of Christ. That's the offer. What are the implications for you today? Well, they're endless. I would try to name them, but instead I'm just going to ask the Holy Spirit to bring one to mind. You know, with the intensity of this call, sometimes I find myself, like, overwhelmed. You know, like, oh, there's, I just, oh, where to start? So let's just ask the Spirit to bring one to mind. Maybe a relationship, or a thing, or a posture, or a person. Something where you know you're kind of going the way of Rome. You're kind of asserting selfishness and power to get control over the world. And actually, the invitation is to reorient yourself around the selfless love of Christ. Something come to mind? Follow me daily to the cross. It's a terrifically challenging invitation. Surrender your ego, your, your rights, your needs, your resources, your time, your energy, your plans, your preferences, your church, your resource, on and on, for the sake of others. Okay, so that's an intense call, right? Why do it? Because actually we'll, we'll experience it as just burdensome and like, unless... Unless. Have you heard the story of Charlemagne's tomb? I, I think it's true. I did my due diligence. I'm not positive, but I, I don't think it's a fable. But if it is a fable, it teaches a val- valuable lesson. In 1080, 186 years after Charlemagne's death, Charlemagne's remembered as the father of Europe. His tomb was reopened. And they found in Charlemagne's tomb mostly what they expected. They found gold, and they found jewels, and they found treasures of all sorts, and immense wealth. But then there was the skeleton of Charlemagne himself, still seated on a throne, still wearing a crown, and in his lap was a Bible, and his bony finger rested on a verse with the open Bible. And the verse was these words that Jesus follows, this invitation to follow him with. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And so the bones of Charlemagne are kind of this visual reminder There he is buried in his treasures, testifying to what those near death, maybe our chaplains could testify to this, often remind us that on your deathbed, which could be any day now, you will not look back wishing you had more power. You will not look back wishing you had more beauty or status or pleasure. or You will look back with the most satisfaction on what you gave, on what you gave in love, not what you kept on how you loved those around you selflessly, not what you won. In C.S. Lewis's words, nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. He says, if you look for yourself in life and you orient everything around yourself, in the long run, you are destined to run into hatred and loneliness and despair and rage and ruin and decay. But if you look for Christ, you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. This painting, sorry I didn't prompt you on this. Can you, oh, you're you're ready. I actually had to crop it because it's kind of so intense. Um, This this painting is called The Romans and Their Decadence. It's by a French artist named Thomas Couture. 
And it, I think, hauntingly images the Roman way, the way of selfishness and indulgence, a life ordered by totally selfish desire, surrounded by every kind of indulgence a person could ever want. I mean, not just sexual. The wider painting fills it out, but um, you can look it up if you'd like to see it. The young woman alone here in the middle of the scene, it's kind of hard to see here, it's a little grainy, but she's looking out. She alone is meeting the eye in the painting, and it's as if she's looking at us from this pit of spiritual despair and boredom. She's, she's head of everything she could ever want, and she's bored. She's existentially empty. In contrast, we might look upon the smile of a saint. Paul Murray writes of meeting Mother Teresa. He says, What struck me at once was the radiant joy that shone in her face. A joy which, from moment to moment, seemed to illumine her every expression. At the time, I wondered if I had ever met in my whole life someone so radiant. Hmm. You can go. As I think about kind of the contrasting way, the way of Roman power, the way of kind of a a life ordered by selfishness versus the way of Jesus and selfless power, I can't help but think of Voldemort versus Harry Potter. In particular, there's this very moving scene in, in Order of the Phoenix. When Harry's beginning to succumb to despair, he's, he's kind of in Voldemort's grip. This is in the Ministry of Magic, if you know the story. And Voldemort spews at Harry, so weak, so vulnerable. And it's the way of Rome there, like just power, dominating the enemy, getting what he wants. But suddenly Harry's friends burst onto the scene. And seeing the faces of those that he loves and those he is willing to die to protect, just like his mother had died to protect him. Love wells up within and rouses Harry, and he rebukes Voldemort. He says, you're the weak one. You'll never know love or friendship, and I feel sorry for you. It just illumines how the way of the cross, the way of self-sacrifice and love can be humbling and painful and potentially deadly, but it is deeply, eternally satisfying. It produces life within the self and relational life everywhere we go and life for the world. So the invitation to follow Jesus is the invitation to a cruciform life. It's it's marked by self-giving love. I've begun to make the case why it's worth it, but to understand why it's really worth it, we must go beyond Mother Teresa's smile. We have to see, really see and apprehend the Savior himself, who Jesus is and what he's done. Otherwise, again, this intense call will just be experienced as kind of burdensome. You know, when your cell phone buzzes from a call and you don't know the number and you pick it up and you hear, we are calling with important information regarding your automobile insurance, you wisely distrust whatever follows, don't you? Because the source is just not credible. It's not a credible source. But consider the source of this call. The intensity to Jesus' call of follow me, it's substantiated by the source. That is his person, who he is. Who is Jesus? This is the question that begins the conversation. In verse 18, the disciples are there. Jesus is praying. He says, who do the crowd say I am? And they say, well, a prophet probably. And he says to them, but who do you say I am? And Peter answers, the Messiah of God. And this question, who do you say I am? It just cuts right through all kinds of clutter. I imagine like a hot knife through butter because it's a question to come back to time and time again because for those who have been hurt or disillusioned by the church, who is Jesus? Come back to that question. 
for those who have become disenchanted by Christian culture wars, come back to this question, who's Jesus? For those who grew up in Christian homes, but that was a painful upbringing and they're now questioning everything, or it was a fundamentalist upbringing and they're now deconstructing, who is Jesus? For atheists or agnostics or, or Muslims or New Age spiritualists or those who've been deeply wounded by pastors, who is Jesus? Come back to this question. Well, who do the crowds say? They say he's a prophet like Elijah because he's doing miracles like Elijah did. This is the answer of 1.8 billion Muslims still to this day who agree with them. the New Testament crowds. Jesus has regarded in Islam Esau, the prophet. Every time they say his name, Esau, peace be upon him. He's the second prophet in Islam behind Muhammad. Distanced by history as we are from Jesus' miraculous earthly life, the modern West offers all kinds of alternative situations. Most typically, he's kind of like Gandhi. He's a spiritual leader, an ethical leader, a moral teacher. Maybe he was a magician or, or a con man. I think large swaths of our friends and neighbors and co-workers actually just leave the question unasked altogether because they don't really feel the need to wrestle with it, you know, that who's Jesus? I don't know. Who needs a Messiah? Let's just go kind of numb my existential angst with Netflix and other distractions. It's just not an important question. Others are sickened by the question. Anything associated with Christianity for them just kind of turns the gut a little bit because it brings back painful memories for them. Thoughts of religious violence or thoughts of conversion therapy or QAnon or far-right politics or, or the like. Just something that just, oh, I can't even go there. But again, come back to this question. I invite you, even if it's a little painful, who is Jesus? Now, the you here, when Jesus says, who do you say I am, is plural. And this is why I advocate that the New Testament translator should use y'all. Um, because we don't see it often, right? But it is plural, and it's actually in the Greek front-loaded. So it's kind of like, you all, who do you say I am? Um, and it's front-loaded to emphasize it, as if he's sending the question beyond just the disciples to anyone, the world at large, you and I, you all, who do you say I am? Who in your heart of hearts do you believe Jesus is? This is a question that has to be resolved before you can hear the call to follow me as anything other than burdensome. Well, Peter speaks for all the disciples everywhere when he confesses the truth of Jesus' identity. You're the Christ, the Messiah. How many of you know that Christ was not Jesus' last name? All of you probably, most of you. It is a title. It is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Messiah. literally means anointed one. And as you look at the Old Testament's kind of teaching around what the anointed one, what the Messiah will look like and do, he's going to be descended from David. He's going to be anointed with the Spirit. He's going to delight in God. And then Isaiah 11:4 goes on, righteousness will be his belt. Faithfulness, the sash around his waist. And then the wolf and the lamb are lying down together and kids are playing over the adder's den. And he, verse 9, they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In other words, the Old Testament picture of the Messiah is a robust, enormous, justice-bringing, shalom-bringing, making of all things right and good. That's the source of this call, the one who's going to renew all things. This means that the Messiah calling us to follow him to the cross isn't actually merely calling us to the cross. He's actually calling us through the cross. Resurrection comes through the cross, not to the end, but to a restored and new and just creation. 
Now, of course, in Jesus' day and in our day, as we're seeing, this fuller messianic hope of all things being made new is kind of being reduced to a nationalistic, largely political hope. And so many of the disciples and those around them are hoping for a, a political revolutionary who would throw off Roman oppression, maybe someone who would crucify the crucifiers. But this was not the Messiah Jesus came to be, and that is why he goes on to bid them to silence, to secrecy, tell no one. Yes, I'm the Messiah, but don't tell anyone. Because it was likely that if word got out at that point, they would have tried to force Jesus to be this political and military leader against the Roman army. He said, no, before the word gets out, I have to make something clear. First, I'm going to be killed. That's the kind of Messiah I am. First, I need to be crucified. So then Jesus goes on to say, well, that's who he is, Messiah, but let's add some meat to those bones. What kind of Messiah is he? And we see that by what he does. Verse 21, Jesus sternly ordered and commanded them to tell no one, saying, the Son of Man. And at this point, you hear Son of Man, and the disciples' minds jump to Daniel 7, because they know Daniel 7, and they know that's where the Son of Man comes from. And there, the Ancient of Days, the Father Almighty is giving the Son of Man, who's this human divine figure, all authority, and he's giving him a kingdom, and this kingdom is going to topple all the political kingdoms of the world. And so their minds are like, okay, so he is the political Messiah. He is going to overthrow Rome. He is going to crucify the crucifiers. But then his next statement kind of stops them in their tracks. But first, he must be rejected and killed and then raised. And the picture here emerges of a powerful political Messiah whose kingdom obliterates the kingdoms of the world, but not how they expect and not yet. He's telling them that the Son of Man will conquer Rome one day, but first there's a bigger, bigger problem, namely the problem of sin in our hearts, and there's a better solution than the power of Rome, a better solution than crucifying the crucifiers, the power of love, the power of the cross, selfless sacrifice. You know, 1 John 4 says, God is love. Gosh, that could be the sermon. Just say that a few times and ask you to meditate on it. God is love. So as you look at God's people around the world, that's a good rubric. Is this loving? God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. And so here, his actions are demonstrating who he is. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Not so that we might be dead on a cross, but that we might go through the cross, under resurrection, live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And here's where I want to end. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. You know, A.W. Tozer has famously said this. He said, because we tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God, that means that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What we think about God is the most important things about us. Is it, though? Responding to the call of Jesus to follow him to the cross, yes, surely it begins by believing, rightly, you're the Messiah. Yes, not a, not a teacher, not a prophet, but the Messiah. But our belief about God is only half the story. What about his beliefs about us? Not that we loved God, but that he loved us this intense call to dislocate ourselves from the center of our story and to reorient everything around love for him and others, that is finally only sustained and compelling to us to the extent that we recognize that we really apprehend what the Messiah believes about us. 
This was precisely on display in the Messiah's suffering and rejection and death. His beliefs about you, as it were, sprouted legs and walked to the cross. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He said, I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing, and this is Tozer, is how we think of God. But Lewis says, by God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. It is written that we shall stand before God in judgment. The promise of glory is the promise, almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, and shall please God. And he says, to please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or as a father delights in his son. It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is the truth. So the call to the cross, yes, it's costly, but it's ultimately through the cross to redemption because it's the Messiah who calls us. And then the Messiah whose belief about you grew legs and walked him to the cross for your sins. You know, not to conquer you, but to be crucified for you. That's the kind of power that changes the world. And now, as a result, you are. You are a real ingredient in the divine happiness. You are not pitied by God. You are delighted in by God. And so you, may you know and feel kind of the joyful weight of that glory. As you hear this call to take up your cross and daily follow him, know it is ultimately for your good unto life. And so, Father, we pray that you would, by your Spirit, give each of us maybe one tangible takeaway of how we could further reorient our hearts around this sacrificial love that you've loved us with, maybe with a spouse or a child or a roommate or a parent or a coworker, or maybe it's a posture. Would you just invite us into the way of life, the way of the cross? We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.